welcome to episode 11 of the SRA podcast. This is your host, Alex Humba, back for another week of fun and excitement and just all around great times, I'm sure. Uh, I did survive the hurricane. I realized the last episode came out late uh, due to the hurricane since I was down there in the hurricane relief uh, mission down there in South Carolina out of North Georgia. Uh, that went really well. That went really well, I think. Um, but it has kind of messed up the podcast schedule, so I apologize for that. We are now on Fridays. This works a lot better that uh, I can record in the middle of the week and then have it out by the end of the week, as opposed to recording at the end of the week and having it out in the middle of the week. It kind of, that was getting weird, to say the least. Uh, much like last episode, we are joined once again by, uh, I believe, officially titled co-host now, Faye. She has returned once more. <laughs> I don't remember having a vote on that. You're going to have to start paying me at this rate. I know. We'll, we'll split the, the the 50 bucks that I get after patrons fees and everything and the, the cut. Speaking of, don't forget to donate to uh, Alex's Patreon to keep this uh, podcast running. You know, uh, he doesn't get paid for this. This is all uh, out of his time his, uh, and uh, his effort. It's true, and we'll have an intermission in the middle of the show to discuss this more, because I need to show myself out more often than I do, because I always I always end up recording ads for my Patreon, and then I cut them out because I feel self-conscious about it, but I need to stop doing that, because otherwise people don't realize I have a Patreon, so I should probably stop doing that. Hey, you put yourself out there... You put yourself out there a little bit more, and in no time you'll be making those big Chapo bucks. Oh, man. I think Chapo Trap House is up to, like, 100000 a month now. If something ridiculous like that. I don't know. All I know is it's a lot of At money. At this rate, they're going to be richer than Chapo. I know. At this rate. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, podcast coming out on Friday now, but also the Hurricane Relief efforts. Very successful. Very excellent. We stocked up two shelters, uh, a church in Augusta, Georgia, and then a high school that was converted into a shelter in Orangeburg, I think. Something like that. Uh, very, very good time. Had a very excellent shout out on the guillotine podcast with Bones and Brent. Uh, I, I was absolutely flattered by their excellent discussion of the hurricane relief efforts. Uh, so big shout out to them for discussing it on their very popular platform. And uh, I think it's worth repeating uh, the quote they pulled from your uh, report, which uh, you can find on socialistaria.org. Um, from uh, Alex's report, the comment you left, uh, we did not show up as a militia. We showed up as socialists ought to come to the people with food to feed the hungry, water to quench the thirsty, and blankets for the cold. And I have to say that uh, you, Alex, and the other members of the North Georgia chapter did a fantastic job getting out there, you know, in these uh, bad weather conditions, heading up to these people who needed help and uh, helping out where you helping out where you could. Uh, honestly, I'm really proud to have you all as members of the SRA, and uh, I hope that we're able to do more actions like this in the future. You can't see it because I'm, this is an audio format, but I'm blushing right now. It's, it's, it's quite, quite flattering. But yes, it's, it's, uh, if you'll believe it, I wrote that report on my plane flight back home. Because for those who don't know, because that wasn't in the last podcast because it was recorded before all this hurricane stuff. Uh, 
I wrecked my car getting back home because Kansans aren't supposed to leave their home state. Uh, Kansas is nice and flat and dry, and our streets are laid out in a nice symmetric grid-like fashion. Uh, we run north, south, east, west, as opposed to Georgia, where you're going up and down, and for some reason they felt the need to curve through the mountains instead of doing the rational thing and just destroying the mountain. That's that's what we did in Colorado. You just dig right through the mountain. But no, no, Georgia Georgia felt the need to make these long, lying, spiraling roads. And alas, my, my Kansas driving skills were not up to the par and ended up having an unfortunate accident out in the hills. Um, thankfully, nobody was hurt, myself included. I was fine. There was nobody coming in the opposite direction. It was I left early in the morning, so it was just my car that took the blunt of the damage. But I'm okay. That's what counts. The membership rallied around the situation, got a GoFundMe started, and uh, was able to raise the money for a plane ticket back home, as well as a little bit of extra money to put towards a new car. Though when that will happen, who knows? Cars are a little more expensive than they used to be. So, speaking of, you got to keep an eye out. Uh, I read a report earlier today. Apparently, um, already uh, certain unscrupulous individuals are taking cars from the hurricane areas in North and South Carolina that were in the floodwaters, towing them off and uh, doing minimal repairs and selling them as used cars on the side. Uh, apparently, uh, it's possible for a car to survive a flood and marginally function for uh, a few days or weeks afterward until the salt water and uh, chemical water residue left behind eats away and kills the electronics. So that's uh, that's something uh, you and a lot of anyone else who's looking at a new used pre-owned vehicle uh, should probably be on the lookout for. Uh, that is very unfortunate that we have people that are doing that. It's, it's just somewhat despicable behavior, honestly. But Alas, some people have have no ethical qualms when it comes to making a couple bucks. So we will go ahead and move with that seamless transmission transition into a man who has no ethical qualms about making a few bucks, uh, or in this case, spending a few bucks with no ethical qualms. Uh, Cody Wilson, he's been on the show before. Uh, former, not not in person, obviously. Not in person. Alas, that would have. Actually, it's probably for the best. My show might have taken a tank in the, the ratings if uh, he had been on after the current events that are transpiring around him. Uh, so, to say the least, uh, Cody Wilson, he's in a bit of hot water right now. As if it wasn't enough that uh, half the U.S. state attorney generals decided that his 3D printing company was an affront against all that we hold dear and are suing his company, Defense Distributed slash DefCAD. Um, he, unfortunately, Cody Wilson, he's an ANCAP, uh, for those who don't know, that's anarchist capitalist. Uh, he is a self-described crypto anarchist, which, yeah, that's just ANCAP with more flavor. Um, he, he, he has some very unfortunate views, and apparently these very unfortunate views translate to very serious actions in the real world, as he is now... Uh, being charged with sexual assault against a minor. Apparently, he paid a underage minor $500 for various services in a hotel room. It, this is not good, obviously, we'll go ahead and say. Uh, so, 
Not totally unexpected, though. What is it with right-wing libertarians and pedophilia? That I, it really seems like there's a trend. Yeah, I could, I could say that we could probably extrapolate some serious data from that. Uh, when these charges came out against him, he was out of the country in Taiwan. Uh, why he was there, I don't know. Uh, apparently, upon learning that he is facing charges, he attempted to stay in Taiwan. He missed his flight back home um, and then was caught by the Taiwanese authorities as he was posing as a student trying to get a apartment in Taiwan uh, that the apartment property owner uh, realized who he was, reported him to the Taiwanese authorities. The Taiwanese authorities arrested him, uh, put him on the next plane back home, and the U.S. Marshals took him into custody. In the fallout from this, uh, he has resigned as leader of Defense Distributed, and they have appointed a new president to take the helm. Um, let's see, I got her name around here somewhere. The new director of Defense Distributed, not new president. I don't know why I said president. Presidents and directors, they, they get mixed up in my head. Uh, the new director of Defense Distributed is Paloma Hindroff. Um, she will be taking over operations of the company, uh, keeping in mind that uh, the company is the one being sued by all these state attorney generals. Uh, she will be taking it over during this time. Uh, shipments of their uh, USB drives with the schematics are continuing to ship out as expected. Uh, the, apparently things are business as usual in the company, even though Mr. Wilson has resigned and it looks like is currently out on bail that he did pay his bail and is roaming around somewhere. So we'll see how this all goes down. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know the politics of the new director or any of the other board members or employees, but Cody Wilson is the sort of guy, him leaving this project can only mean good things for everyone involved. Definitely. Definitely. It's, uh, he is not an individual we want to be pushing this forward uh i i think we've been giving uh we've been giving i think the marxist leninists call it critical support <laughs> yeah critical support or just i i support what the the idea is i don't much like the guy behind the idea especially given these new things coming to light uh it's it's one of those situations that you can always hope for somebody better to be pushing these things forward. And unfortunately, in the U.S., we don't always get that. But I, I do think he will be at least seeing some justice for these actions. It seems like the marshals have a pretty solid case against Wilson. And the company is eager to throw off the dead weight around its neck that is Mr. Wilson and move on it sounds like all the employees are taking it pretty well which given the man's beliefs is maybe not much of a surprise we'll see how it shakes out you know like i said it can only go up from here uh, indeed we do also have some more gun news that uh a more established gun company uh, smith and wesson has had a significant vote recently so for those who are unaware smith and wesson a popular firearms manufacturer, is owned by a holding company, American Outdoor Brand. 
Uh, so this this company has a lot of different companies underneath it, including Smith & Wesson. Uh, there is a shareholder group called the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility, and they pushed out a vote at the shareholder meeting about a resolution to for Smith & Wesson to look into gun safety, uh, what what contributing factors Smith & Wesson has to making guns safer, what can be done to make guns safer. Should Smith & Wesson be looking at how it advertises to people, uh, the sort of audiences that Smith & Wesson is targeting, uh, basically things saying there's a gun problem in America, so uh, the the gun companies should start taking responsibility for it, is basically what this group is pushing. Uh, the, that vote succeeded. It passed through the shareholders meeting, and now I guess we'll see how that shakes out as far as what this report within the company does, whether or not the shareholders are going to try to push a particular uh, agenda, for lack of a better word, on Smith & Wesson. I Honestly, I come from this from the perspective that I don't know what gun companies can necessarily do about gun violence um i think it's a lot of it is liberal media putting the blame on the wrong side of things at the same time i mean obviously it's a corporation it exists to make a profit which means it needs to sell its merchandise and so maybe there is something to look into on how these things are advertised but i'll be quite honest with you and uh, you can say if you've noticed this but even in kansas which is a very pro-gun state i don't really see advertisements for guns i don't i don't think i've ever seen an ad for a gun that wasn't in a gun store or in a gun related setting here in california it's actually a law that gun stores are not allowed to advertise handguns on the outside of their buildings which I think is very strange because you can put up an advertisement in your window advertising rifles. You can advertise AR-15s as long as they're California compliant, but you can't advertise a handgun in your window. It's some law from the 80s, but regardless, gun laws are, sorry, gun advertisements are extremely rare here. Uh, I was actually surprised to see some roadside advertisements for the local gun show uh, a few weeks ago. Um, that was the first advertising of any kind that I've seen relating to guns uh, in my corner of California. I will say I have seen uh, advertisements for gun shows. that Those are up all the time, but usually they're really just plain advertisements. They're just like, oh, there's a gun show at this location at this time. Usually there's no fancy imagery. Yeah, pretty much. No pictures of guns on the ones I saw. I don't know if that's California law or just them trying a you know, certain optics strategy. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I I don't know. It, it's it's something that I look at this and I say, what can these companies do? And of course, the correct answer would be turn over the means of production to the workers. But as far as gun violence, I don't think that there's a huge amount that can be done. And people are f feel free to contact me and correct me about this, because this is honestly something I just I'm struggling to think of something that well the traditional liberal response is to there's one of two approaches either you slap a bunch of safety features on the guns which is how we get things like safeties on double action revolvers and you know chamber in loaded chamber indicators on every single gun mandatory sometimes uh that's one response the other is 
that they could be trying to uh, enforce an assault weapons ban from the supplier side. So that rather than regulating the sale of firearms, they try to, through investor activism, try to force the company to not manufacture, say, rifles with high-capacity magazines or standard capacity, whatever you want to call it, or to, you know, reduce the total production of the guns that they sell. Although that that might be difficult to enforce on a company that's, uh, that's... Companies in America are encouraged to make as much stuff as they can possibly sell so but i i think that's sort of the idea is to try to do assault weapons sort of ban sort of gun regulation from the top down using the investor class to enforce the dictate rather than uh rather than doing it through government mandate yeah it's, it's an interesting approach and i just i don't know what to think about it i think that it, there's i think there's a lot of well-meaning people behind it at, at the same time it's the sort of thing that uh Things, especially, I mean, just even in the name, the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility, I, I think this just ties back into the thing of, can corporations be responsible? And the answer is no, not really, because, like you said, corporations are encouraged very heavily to make a profit at all costs. I mean, that's literally the law in a lot of states that a for-profit corporation must act in the best interests of its shareholders and that that's how we get into these really bizarre situations so it, it's one of those things that i don't know this this corporate activism i i'm always distrustful of corporate activism because it's really genuine and and it's uh it's bourgeois by definition oh yes i mean these shareholders have literally millions of shares these are not so this is not someone's 401k account this is the um the uh religious group that pushed this apparently um it wasn't simply their votes alone but they actually uh worked together with blackrock and vanguard which are two very large um very large investment firms index sort of uh investment stocks uh who hold between them a majority of uh smith and wesson stock and so it was by convincing these literal wall street massive giant corporation investment firms convincing them to back this proposal it's it's basically the definition of bourgeois it's it's wall street activism and you know they're probably approaching gun control from a very neoliberal perspective and that and that they want to make it more and more difficult for civilians and especially poor working class civilians to own guns while uh, orienting more of the military industrial complex towards producing weapons for the military and the police so any anything that comes out of this is not going to be good uh, we can hope that it just turns out to be more stupid safety features like revolver safeties but i would expect it to be worse than that oh definitely and uh, honestly I, i'd like to touch on this topic just a little bit too that uh so stuff like vanguard so if you're fortunate enough to be in a situation where your job provides you a 401k, uh, you've probably seen different options, different uh, stock investment things that you can get that have different growth periods and whatever. Uh, when I had a 401k, I, they, my company offered a lot of different options for their investment stuff. Uh, it's worth noting that, like, so... This is literally, there are millions and millions of workers who contribute to a 401k every week when they get paid on Friday or whatever. And where is that money going? I mean, you own it, technically. Uh, 
all kind of depending on vesting periods to on your employer contributions. But you're storing that money when you're investing it. And I don't say this to discourage somebody from saving for their retirement. Please save some money for when you can't work, because I really doubt the government's going to come and save us. Uh, the, the era of Social Security is over. I don't the system's bound to collapse in the near future. Uh, but as far as like thinking about when you're putting your money in these things, remember that that's millions of workers contributing portions of their paycheck every Friday to these companies. And what are they doing? Yes, they're investing it for you to make some interest so that you can grow your retirement account, but they're still holding your stocks and you're not deciding what happens with those stocks. So you're... You own the capital, but the capital is controlled by your uh, broker. So Exactly. And and so exactly that, that in a situation like this where you have Vanguard that because it gets millions and millions of dollars dumped into it every week because people are putting away in their retirement plans, they get massive amounts of stock and they have huge control in these companies to make decisions exactly like this. And it's it's absolutely spooky when you think about it that workers have voluntarily through this bizarre tax exemption that came about uh, just by almost accident in the 80s now do exactly this and and the same thing happens with pension funds too that like the american federation of teachers has been saying well we're going to withdraw all of our stocks from uh, gun companies and we're going to move them into something else and this is a very serious political tool in the world of capital that deciding where you put uh, retirement investments and deciding how those investments are used this is serious money this is a serious portion of the economy that people just don't think about the consequences of i mean you look at it one way um the those 401k and retirement system basically workers are setting aside a portion of their salary that could be used uh, towards capital in their own life, towards buying a house sooner or getting education, or uh, some people would obviously use it for a higher standard of living, but that could also have health benefits. All this uh, potential capital, all this potential use values that people could buy if we want to be Marxist about it, uh, all of this, instead of being used by the working class, you know, starting businesses or anything else, it's being given back to the bourgeoisie with the promise that uh, workers will get it with interest later, but they're discouraged from withdrawing from their uh, 401k. They're discouraged from withdrawing money early because then they get an extra tax penalty. So basically, the system uh, economically incentivizes workers to give control of their capital to the bourgeoisie, who then use it to wield political influence. I don't know if the system was designed with that in mind, but that is its basic effect. And uh, it's kind of frightening when you think about it. <laughs> oh, definitely. And the, those those early withdrawal fees are nothing to blush at. When I left my job and I cashed out my 401k to go ahead and pay off some debts, uh, 35% was withheld. And that's that's for both the fee and then the income taxes that you take a hit on from that. So I literally a third of it gone before I even see the check. So it's it's nothing it's nothing to sneeze at, that's for sure. Because I know I actually worked with a guy in the warehouse when I was still picking boxes off the shelves that uh, he was a man in his 50s 
and he hadn't quite hidden that. I think it's like 55 uh, when you can start withdrawing or there's special exemptions for like 55 and then you're supposed to withdraw when you're 65. Uh, so he was in his early 50s and he had quit his job for a medical issue. And this is man, he's been he he's he's getting up there in the years. So he's been contributing for, to his 401k for decades. And what ended up happening was he had to he, he had to go on unemployment. He needed the money. So he went ahead and withdrew it. And he told me that uh, between fees and taxes, the government took $40,000 out of his 401k. And so it's like $40,000. That's enough to live decently for a year as a single person. Uh, more if you stretch it out and ration it. So that's that's a lot of money to see your life work just go away. Yep. I do want to make one more comment on this article. Uh, there's a comment in here. Uh, Smith & Wesson essentially was complaining uh, that they said that this was a um, politically motivated uh, attack on their company. I just, I just want to sort of comment that out as the sort of uh, executive hubris that you find at these sort of corporations. Everything economic is political, and everything political is economic. Uh, investors deciding whether or not to invest in your company are never going to be doing it, almost never going to be doing it purely on the basis of, will this make me more money? Because odds are there's another company that will make them more than yours. It's based on tons and tons of political factors of whether or not, whether or not they like your company. And so complaining that uh, your investors in this case are pursuing a political agenda, it might be a bit more directly partisan than many other choices, but fundamentally it's no different than any, than any other uh, investor's choice to invest or not in the company based on their own personal feelings. So I just wanted to point out that sort of corporate whinging um, and call it out for what it is. I, I really have no respect for that. Oh, absolutely. It is It is absolutely corporate whinging. And uh, for for if for the leadership of Smith & Lesson to come out and complain about this, it's just, it, it shows for exactly what it is, that it's nothing more than uh, executives being hurt over this. When honestly, what does it even matter to these executives? The lifespan of a executive in a company is five to 10 years. They don't, it's not like they're going to be in this position for very long at all, honestly, in the corporate world. It's very common for chief executive officers and people like them to do a couple years, uh, fulfill a contract, and then move right on to the next company. These guys don't have a... And if they leave, and if they leave early, they're going to get a big old golden parachute. Maybe not as big at Smith & Wesson at a, as at some other uh, m larger financial firms, but even if they leave early, they're still going to be making millions of dollars on their way out the door. So this is uh, no sympathy. <laughs> yeah, these guys are just, they can, they can cry me a river into their millions and millions in stock options. This is going to be, there's, there's no harm for them. There's absolutely no harm. Oh, but we can look at situations where there is harm going on, uh, at least harm to feelings and maybe general society, if we're unlucky. Uh, uh, Mr. Trump, President Trump, Supreme Leader Trump, Glorious Leader Trump, uh, uh, visited the UN. He, he got to conduct the UN General Assembly and he, he got to give a rousing, glorious speech about just, just how great America is, how he's made America great again forever. And 
alas, uh, during his rousing speech that just brings tears to the eyes of all the paid actors around him, uh, unfortunately, the, the UN did not receive it quite as well as he had hoped. Um, at, at one point, he said that his administration has accomplished more than any other administration in its first two years. And uh, the, the UN General Assembly responded by laughing out loud, almost in uproarious laughter. <laughs> um, he, he, he kind of chuckled along with himself and said he wasn't quite expecting that. And then he continued on. Uh, this has... This is just, I mean, this is just sad, to be completely honest. It, it's sad for... I mean, it's uh, it's the greatest, uh, what was supposed to be the end of history, the greatest empire in the world, just being laughed at. And it's, I mean, on the one hand, you know, fuck imperialism. But on the other hand, ah, oh, man, what a, what a way to decline. I mean, America didn't even get, what, 30 years in before they had their first Caligula? Yeah. I mean, I, I'd give us a little more credit than that. We've we've been definitively an empire for at least the end of World War II. Uh, you can kind of make arguments going back. Oh, uh, true. But I'd say I was I was I was looking at it more in terms of versus the Soviet Union. Uh, once you get to the '90s and the U.S. becomes its the sole superpower, you know, Pax Americana and all that sort of nonsense. <laughs> I I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, Honestly, this is the sort of situation that I just I just look at it. And I feel sad because yeah, on one hand, we we see the death throes of the empire. I mean, this is all empires rise and all empires fall. And that's just a fact of history. There is no eternal empire and there never will be. Uh, at the same time, it's one of those situations where you just you just look at the situation and say, "Man, this is this is just sad." This is just you. It's embarrassing. It's absolutely embarrassing. Is what it is. It is. It is embarrassing, and it. I don't know at what point in history we can get our respect back. At the same time, I feel like when that time comes, America probably won't exist as we think of it today. But I think this is really the begin of the decline, and uh, I say that not to be melodramatic. But to be realistic of, because the problem here is, is that uh, Trump's speech, besides getting laughter, uh, was also really disturbing. That Like, he started going on about a lot of different stuff, and at one point basically said that America was built on patriotism, and we're, or that we're going towards the future with patriotism. And the way he kept bringing this up, patriotism doesn't make sense in that context that that's not the right word for what he was describing but everyone knows what the correct word is and why he didn't use it the correct word is nationalism and he kept talking in terms of nationalism but he did not describe it that way because that's just too obvious but it's very much the way his speaking is going that that America doesn't need the world, that America won't listen to the world, that America can do its own thing. This is, these are nationalist tomes. These are things that decry global unity or any sort of international partnerships and just go full blown into nationalist sentiment. And it's just, it's disturbing. I'm not sure 
I'm not sure if there's any, if there's ever been any real difference between nationalism and patriotism. I've always thought that the distinctions people offered are always a little bit, I haven't really bought it, but it's clear now that even the sort of, you know, mild, subdued, you know, wholesome patriotism of yore with the, you know, apple pie and hot dogs and fireworks and the little American flags isn't really the sort of patriotism that people are talking about anymore. The patriotism that the right and conservatives are talking about is more of a, it's less of a civic nationalism and more of a full-blown militaristic military worship, police worship, state worship, uh, sort of nationalism, sort of, you know, it's, 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 it's fascist. It's, it's fascist or getting close to fascist. It's been said many times, you know, it, it's getting difficult at times to tell the principled conservatives from the uh, unscrupulous uh, white nationalists. They're blending into each other. Some of the extreme edges of the, uh, of the radical right are maybe, you know, disappearing or going underground. But the mainstream of these, of the fascists and the conservatives has merged. And uh, I think we're looking at a really a much more substantial right-wing movement than people even realize. Oh, certainly. And I didn't have this in the show notes, but I'm going to touch upon it now because this is a perfect opportunity. And uh, for parents who let their children listen to the show, first of all, why? And second of all, sorry, but explicit language coming. Uh, so Ted Cruz is running for Texas senator again, because of course he is. And uh, like we discussed previously on the podcast, a very sad case of Botham Jean, man shot dead in his own apartment doing no crime by an off-duty police officer. Uh, Ted Cruz is going out there and defending Amber Goyer, the officer who shot this innocent man dead in his own home. And it's what he is saying is complete and utter bullshit. And there is no defense of this, and yet he still offers this defense for this completely absurd situation that he, he's saying we can't jump to conclusions, that we have to give the benefit of the doubt. And this is coming from Ted Cruz, who is a self-described tea partier, uh, a guy who wants to preserve freedom and the American ideal. And the only American ideal he is preserving is this idea that the state can come into your home and kill you on the spot and suffer no consequences. And certainly that does not line up with these supposed libertarian ideals that Ted Cruz claims to have. And yet here he is offering the defense of a, the state killing an innocent black man in his own apartment doing no crime. And now we have people, the police searched this man's apartment and found some weed. So now he's obviously a criminal uh, when the amount that they found was nothing more than a fine. And besides that matter, he is in his own apartment. He was doing no crime. And yet people are still reaching to defend uh, an agent of the state killing somebody in their own home. And it just blows my mind that... This is how this is how people react that somebody, an innocent person dead in their own apartment. And yet we still have these supposed libertarians on the right saying, oh, but but this, but that, but this, but that. When these are the people that are supposed to be saying, don't tread on me, when in actuality, it just seems that they would be perfectly OK with certain people getting treaded upon so long as it isn't them. 
libertarianism was never an ideology. It's always been an aesthetic. It's just a uh, friendly, you know, it's just a weed-friendly, gay-friendly, uh, you know, slightly more chill mask over the same old Republican racism, the same conservative traditionalism and nationalism and demand of respect uh, for the state. And I, I think what I think what people need to realize, and especially especially the Democrats, the Democrats, they need to realize they're not living in the West Wing. This is not a TV show, and this isn't politics. Isn't a friendly game between principled opponents. The right wing has adopted a nationalist, pseudo-fascist ideology, which is directly tied into the personality. It's a cult of personality around the president, around Donald Trump. Donald Trump is such a ridiculous, laughable, contemptible, untrustworthy joke of a human being, but he commands intense respect from so much of America's right because he is a strong figure who represents them and represents the state and represents legitimacy. And so that means that since Trump is in charge of the government, any aspect of the government, because Trump is the head of the government, all branches of the government must be respected as long as they don't involve Democrats. That means the police, that means the military, that means that there is this adoption of this nationalist, fascist ideology and aesthetic. And basically, they have to defend their team, they have to defend the legitimacy of their uh, avatar in Trump at all costs, which also ties into another segment, which is uh, Brett Kavanaugh, our Supreme Court nominee and likely serial rapist. Oh, I think it's more than likely at this point. He's got free uh, accusers at this point that, and uh, I, I use the terminology accuser, but really victim is better that, yeah, he's got, at last I counted, free that have come forward about just outlandish things and not outlandish in what they're saying as far as I, I I do believe they're genuine I say outlandish because it just seems so utterly blatant this frat boy culture that was going on it's really it sounds like it sounds like deleted scenes from the worst most vicious college movie ever the you know college frat house movie it's like I had a conversation with a coworker earlier today. Um, you know, very sort of, you know, conservative guy. We get into arguments about whether or not homeless people should be allowed to live. You know, a, a totally normal human being. Um, uh, even mentioning, even mentioning Kavanaugh to this person and even mentioning the allegations against him sent this person into an outright fit of anger a state of agitation he got up out of his chair came around the cubicle and started talking to me loudly in a voice at an offhanded comment i'd made that i'd intended to end the conversation with uh really set this person off and the sheer vitriol and uh refusal to even consider the truth of what uh kavanaugh's accusers are saying the the speed at which he leapt to apologetics for Kavanaugh, the speed with which he leapt to coming up with any possible tangential reason why these women might be lying, um, 
it's honestly shocking to see someone with this much conviction to defend a rapist who's been quite credibly accused. We know that this man uh, routinely gets blackout drunk, or at least has in his past gotten blackout drunk, who was a party animal in college. And he comes out on Fox News and makes this ridiculous statement saying that he was a virgin through college. The, the, and, and the context of that quote as well saying, oh, no, I've never sexually, I've never sexually assaulted anyone. I was a virgin. Those aren't the, those aren't the same thing. <laughs> also, can you imagine wanting a job so much that you, you go on public television and say that? Not, not necessarily um, not losing your virginity through college, but having to come out and announce that publicly in front of the world as part of an extended job interview is that really worth it are you really are you really willing to stand up and call these people liars to uh tell these ridiculous stories on live television about having a calendar keeping a calendar from high school where you wrote definitely didn't sexually assault anyone today in your calendar and and saying this on live air and i can't I, i find it difficult to be angry simply because I'm so shocked that people actually believe this, that it seems like this must be some sort of elaborate joke, that there's some sort of glitch in our universe. But unfortunately, it's the case that men simply don't believe women, that sexual assault is so trivialized, that rape is so trivialized in our society, that men are willing to willfully, not all men, obviously, but a very large number of men are completely willing to just willfully disbelieve things that are evidently true uh, simply because it disagrees with their interest or it disagrees with their perception of a person. And uh, once you bring partisan politics into it and the sort of power that conservatives would wield by having yet another extreme conservative on the Supreme Court, just the willingness to throw women under the bus, these many of these people have, many of these uh, men on the right have wives and children and parents that they care about, grandparents who have probably been sexually assaulted themselves at some point in their lives or know someone who has been, and they're completely willing to trivialize their experience, completely willing to dismiss, you know, a majority of victims and survivors of sexual assault and rape and just dismiss their uh, stories out of hand simply because those stories can conceivably be made up. They could be made up or they could be used you know, for an explicitly political purpose, which is the go-to for things like this. Uh, it just, the the sexism in this country is so deep. There was a poll, I believe, um, I believe it was Ipsos. I don't have the source in front of me. Someone can correct me in the comments if I'm wrong. But uh, there was a uh, poll which um, was conducted after the first two allegations were made, but before the Fox News interview, um, uh, where they found that... Uh, the support for Kavanaugh among Republican women has dropped by 19%, while support for Kavanaugh among male Republicans has increased. Men are more likely to support this man now that he's been accused of rape, while a substantial minority of Republican women are willing to change their minds, likely based on their own experiences with uh, sexual assault and other sex crimes and uh, sexism and discrimination against women who know that these things are true and who know that this man does not belong in the Supreme Court of the United States. And I think that's a really telling figure, a 19% drop and coincidentally a 16% drop 
among Republican women and support for Donald Trump, which hopefully translates into uh, some better results uh, next month or two with the November elections. Oh, definitely. And it's this whole situation is just, I think it's something that's just kind of ingrained in society that is one of those things we just kind of take for granted. And I think a really poignant thing about all this is, you know, there's, there's tons of stuff in the background basically going well uh there's a lot of stories about what was going on at yale what goes on at yale today and this unfortunately is not something unique to yale this is something found across college campuses that there's there's a lot of these situations on college campuses where you have especially in the fraternity culture just just these awful situations i mean this this stuff about like train and gang rapes this is not this is not something unique i'm afraid this is just this is found across college and campus culture it's just i don't even know how to respond to it sometimes because people just just seem to accept this as a fact of life that all well you know it's it's unfortunate but I do think that this culture is starting to change. I think that there's more accountability. You know, just a couple years ago, there was that uh, there was that boy who died at a college frat party, drank way too much, and fell down some stairs. And they just and uh, and was throwing up, and they you know hit his head really bad. And you know what? Uh, and the and his and his uh, friends didn't call the police. They just thought, oh, he's just drunk. He'll get better. And uh, he ended up dying. Uh, some of those people, some of those boys who are at that party, men, really, since they're college age, men, uh, who, you know, refused to get that person to the hospital. Some of those men did receive, uh, uh, did, did end up being convicted of manslaughter, I believe. So I do think that at least as far as taking fraternities to task, um several of them have been forced to change like racist or uh sexist slogans there's the uh there's the slogan which was also the slogan uh unofficially of uh Kavanaugh's fraternity at Yale was uh yes sorry no means yes and yes means anal which is obviously <laughs> and no no hints of uh rapiness to that at all that would corroborate these rape accusations but uh, a lot of a lot of these for these fraternities these frats are being forced to are slowly being forced to change but unfortunately it's it is such a it is such a part of our culture and colleges as institutions are very good at preserving this sort of behavior you know perpetuating this cycle of debauchery and violence and sexual aggression I don't think it's going to go away any time soon, but I do think we are starting to get better. And uh, yeah, and if Kavanaugh does fail to achieve his nomination and, or even maybe receive some sort of punishment for his crimes, then I think that would definitely help speed things along. But the way things are going, you know, Susan Collins and Jeff Flake are wavering a bit, but I still think uh, the Senate's going to confirm him at this rate. I don't think they'll stop for anything. Oh, certainly. I think... I don't think his nomination is in question, especially after the quote-unquote nuclear whatever in the Senate where we can now Supreme Court justices with just a simple majority and I whatever. I One of the parties was bound to do it eventually. The Democrats lost all moral high ground when they invoked the nuclear option themselves and uh, whatever. It's, it's all a broken system anyway, so... Oh, I guess we should probably pay some lip service to the fact that 
uh, Rosenstein supposedly resigned, and then it turned out he didn't resign. He was going to make himself get fired, and looked like he was fired, and now he's not fired, and now Trump says he's not going to fire him, and it's just it's a whole stupid situation that the, this ongoing Russia stuff just... The Democrats, the Democrats are all threatening to stage a huge protest. They, you know, I signed up for it myself way back, back when I was still in, uh, when I was still uh, in the Bernie Krat sort of camp. Um, you know, they have four hundred thousand people on this list who've committed to going to a protest. Who knows how many actually will? Who many? Who, who knows how many will protest for more than a day or two? I've seen people on Reddit and Twitter liberals talking about a general strike which would be great if uh, their idea of general strike wasn't taking a few days of paid vacation holding a sign outside during the day for a couple of days on a weekend maybe and then going home because they have to pay rent you know like you do in a general strike i don't think i don't think they know what a general strike means i just think they heard chapo trap house users talking about it listeners talking about it and uh i don't think they quite got the concept a general strike means you don't spend any money that means no money for the landlord no money for the taxman no work for your boss you buy your groceries in advance you live off canned goods and it's a war of attrition against the government it's basically the citizens version of a government shutdown and uh it's not it's not your freaking um women's day march or your you know January 21st anti-Trump march where you go out and you wave a sign and you get it all out of your system and you feel better afterwards. A general strike is a serious proletarian tactic against the government and the bourgeoisie. And the liberals have no concept of how to do that or how to have an effective protest of any kind. So any sort of demonstration, any sort of protest that comes out of uh, Rosenstein's firing or resignation or whatever else is probably going to complete going to be completely ineffective. Um, you know, especially if uh, Trump gets his Supreme Court nominee, it's all really pointless. Uh, so for any leftists out there, all I can really say is, you know, maybe use the opportunity to radicalize some people. Hey, your peaceful protest hasn't hasn't uh, hasn't fixed anything. Have you considered Molotovs? You know, you can go out there and do that if you like, but I don't think anything's going to come up. Yeah. As a syndicalist, you know, I love me some general strike. General strikes are great. But yeah, taking some taking some PTO from the old boss, asking your boss, hey, can I take some days off of work? Uh, probably, probably not what Amelia Puget was thinking when he said strike. I, I don't think that that was what he was uh quite getting at in his works but please mr boss man can i go on strike (laughs) uh the absurdity of the situation but that's that's liberals for you we love them but we also hate them liberals they're not republicans so we'll we'll move quickly on from this because i'm sure this will be a whole episode unto itself in my new 50-part series on russia and trump and why you've been working on that for a while is that ever coming out (laughs) no it's never coming out it's just no it's it's going it will it will come out at the end of history is when it'll come out it will be the end of history the end of history is communism so at least it'll be a happy day indeed uh we'll we'll move to our favorite state in the union uh 
California. Uh, just this I wish. Bastion, bastion of leftists and socialism, communism. It's it's where all the Che Guevara lovers live, and they just they run things as a just a, just just all according to the principles of Karl Marx. Everything there, everything runs just all like that. Yeah, I sure I sure own. Uh, here I am, my socialized housing that I pay thousands of dollars a month to live in, and uh, with my free health care that I pay hundreds of dollars a month in premiums for and can't afford to actually use, and, you know, get all my free avocado toasts and Starbucks coffee shipped to me by Amazon drone every day, provided by our glorious leader, common turn, uh, Jeff Bezos, of course. But, uh, but unfortunately... <laughs> so, California's been doing some reforms recently and one of the reforms they recently did was bail reform so for those who have never had a run-in with the criminal justice system or watched an episode of law and order on the television bail is a system of where you you are arrested the police charge you with some crime you you get charged you get booked into the county jail and the judge looks at your charges looks at the preliminary evidence and says well um, by some, by some mechanism based partially in law and based partially on my own personal discretion, I say you need to pay a thousand bucks to get out of jail until your trial. And you can go to the jail clerk and pay your thousand dollars or have somebody else pay your thousand dollars and they'll let you out of jail until your trial when you're actually tried and determined to be guilty or innocent. Um, and in the meantime, you can be wandering around town, continuing your life. Uh, this also produces the industry of bail bondsmen, which are companies where they pay your bail for some fee, usually 10%. So in this case, you'd pay the bail bondsman $100. He'd post bail for you. Um, this is an extremely exploitive industry. Uh, there's not really much good that comes out of this. Uh, it, it sounds good in principle. It, it really introducing capitalism into the law and order system never got any good results. So as one might realize from just this preliminary hearing of the bail system is they say, well, what happens if I don't have a thousand dollars and what happens if I don't even have a hundred dollars to give to the bail bondsman? And the answer is you sit in jail. That, that's what happens. You sit in jail until your trial, which due to the fact that the American court system is notoriously underfunded and relies heavily on plea bargains just to do day-to-day -day functions, if you decide not to do a plea bargain, which uh, both prosecutors and uh, attorneys appointed on your behalf if you're too poor, which if you can't pay bail, probably in that situation, though not always, uh, you're basically in the situation where you can literally be waiting a year or more for trial, which, by the way, is a violation of your constitutional right to a speedy trial, but uh, all attempts to rule this unconstitutional have proven impossible because the courts just keep saying we're too, we're too underfunded. So we're not going to rule this unconstitutional because we're too underfunded. We can't, we physically can't get to people faster. And that's why these plea bargains exist where uh, the attorney that the state appoints for you will say, well, look, I've talked to the prosecutor and if you just accept this lesser charge, then it will, will be done. You'll get out of jail. Maybe you'll just do some time on probation or whatever. It'll be fine. Uh, this It's an awful system. It's an awful thing what we do. So obviously, as part of this 
thing uh, with this barrel reform is there uh, it's trying to make a little bit of progress in this of saying okay you don't have enough money to post bail maybe we shouldn't have bail in the first place maybe it shouldn't be that you can literally buy a get out of jail card that maybe you shouldn't be able to just buy that maybe this should be done more uh, more fairly and it's a commendable initiative um the groups like the aclu were supporting this measure and then it kind of all went haywire at the end is what i'm getting at several there were several last minute amendments to the bill um there so the issue with getting rid of bail is okay okay so you can't buy your way out of jail anymore uh using bail all of a sudden now you have all these people who are in jail who otherwise would have been bailed out so uh first that leads to overcrowded jails because you know suddenly there's a 20 30 50 percent increase in the number of people being incarcerated there for who knows how long and furthermore uh being in jail is very disruptive to your life it's uh being in jail you can't pay your rent you can't work to make income you can't uh see your you can't see your family you can't you can't do anything you're behind bars and you can only be visited and send very limited mail out if you're lucky uh it's very disruptive being in jail even for just a few months while awaiting trial. Even if you're ruled innocent, it can still ru- it can still ruin your life. This is actually used as a weapon against leftists. For instance, uh, one of the organizers of the Huey P. Newton Gun Club was uh, targeted for this, and eventually uh, he was cleared. But the several months that he spent in jail um, really uh, significantly impacted his life and made it much more difficult for him to survive. Um, now you have this already unfair system that was being applied to many people is now being applied to more people you don't have the get out of jail free card anymore but that doesn't make the underlying jail system any more just and so um there are certain other ways to get out of being held uh in jail um uh, you can uh do a, a risk assessment tool there's various bureaucratic measures where you can appeal your case and you know a uh, panel uh or a judge will look at your case and decide whether or not you're a big enough risk that they have that they have to incarcerate you or whether uh you're just a normal person who may be screwed up or was falsely accused and it's safe to release you to the public without having to pay bail um so again, there's the, okay. So th- now there's a way if you can. It's no longer based on money, but if you can prove that you're that you're a good person, that you're fundamentally safe, and you give your word and everything, you can be let out um, as a low risk assessment individual. The issue with this is uh, these tools. There are there are no judicial standards for them. There are no uh, laws dictating how uh, these rulings of these risk assessments are to be carried out. And so it often functions much like a prison parole board, where it's very much based on the personal decisions of the people doing the review, their personal prejudices. And as we all know, there's systemic prejudice against people of color in our society, against poor people, against queer people, against every minority group in this country, which means that you have not the same, but a very similar issue that the people that are going to be getting out um under this new system, instead of bail, under this expanded risk assessment system, are still going to be relatively privileged white people. You're going to have even more people sitting in jail, having their lives ruined, um, 
with no way out, even paying a fraction of bail through a bondsman, however exploitative that is, at least you're not in jail, uh, people aren't going to have that option anymore. So it's, it's in a way, it's sort of leveled the playing field, but it hasn't, it simultaneously hasn't leveled the playing field enough. And the game is still raped against the people who are incarcerated, and it still ruins lives. So this is an example of a good-hearted liberal reform, an attempt to make our society more just, but the end result is simply uh, exacerbated the problems of the underlying system. Liberal reforms don't solve societal problems. They're band-aids. And uh, if you want to fix a system like the prison industrial complex and the our broken trial system, you need a revolutionary change rather than simply a shifting of change, small change of rules or resources. Oh, definitely. It's it's one of those situations that, yeah, this is road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's sort of situation that, I mean, there's not, there's not too much to say on it other than maybe given a bit of perspective from my background in computer science. Uh, I've heard a lot of talk about algorithmic uh, ways of determining if somebody should be in jail or not, and algorithms are not divine. And this is a serious problem, I, I feel, especially in California where we have Silicon Valley, where you have all these tech libertarians that feel like computers are going to save us all. And don't get me wrong, I love computers. Computers make my life very, very nice. And they're my chosen career path. At the same time, algorithms are not magic. Algorithms are not genies that can just make everything right. Uh, in, in fact, they, they can often be described as genies of old that would twist your wishes. Uh, that you can design some glorious algorithm that ends up having its own inherent biases. Or uh, I've heard a lot about machine learning for criminal justice, which is just the silliest thing I've ever heard. Because machine learning, again, it's not magic. There's very complex linear algebra going on underneath the hood. And it's garbage and what, garbage what's going? You give it, <laughs> but you give it racist data. You're going to get a racist robot, just like that. Uh, chatbot on twitter or wherever they got brigaded by white supremacists and they ended up making a nazi chatbot it's the same thing only you're giving it racist police data racist arrest statistics racist you know just the entire system of justice all of our metrics for measuring crime uh, are all biased against people of color and that's going to result in an algorithm which is biased against people of color because it embodies the uh, bias inherent in the system. Absolutely. And one of the, the best examples I can think of from my studies in machine learning, and this kind of honestly probably one of the areas I'm going to specialize in if linear algebra doesn't kill me first, is exactly this. And one of the best examples I can think of is when one of the common uses of machine learning is to learn pictures of what, what's in a picture. And a use was determining the difference between a dog and a wolf. So they, the data scientists gave it a bunch of pictures of wolves and gave it a bunch of pictures of dogs. And miraculously, it was able to tell the difference between dogs and wolves very well until somebody realized when they started giving it some different pictures, that it hadn't learned how to pick dogs and wolves apart, but that every wolf picture they gave it 
was on a snowy background, whereas every dog picture they gave it was in a nice green grassy background. And so it learned to pick up the background, not the dog versus the wolf. And it's exactly the same thing can be said of trying to make some kind of neural network uh, based on criminal justice statistics that you're not going to get what you want. And even if it did work, is that really a society that we want to be in where we have a machine that will predict crime, that will uh, prejudge people, or that will, you know, metaphorically peer into someone's soul to see if they're worthy of walking the streets or not? I, I think Isaac Asimov wrote a couple of short stories about that way back. I have one of his collections. And uh, I think there's a lot of moral questions that tech libertarians fail to ask as they pursue these ideas blinded by their greed and blinded by their ideology that they believe that that they believe that technology and benevolent capitalism will always save the day and uh honestly it looks like we're rushing headlong more and more into a dystopia oh absolutely i i i'm becoming increasingly of the belief that deus ex is actually just straight up prophetic and that we're 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 bound to get to that point any day now i think the games have it as 2026 i think that might be a little optimistically far out it might get there sooner than expected uh so we'll we'll leave california with just a quick thing that i saw while researching this that uh jerry brown got interviewed by somebody and uh first of all consider me extremely shocked Jerry Brown's been doing this for 40 years now, and just, good lord, a man in singular politics for 40 years, that just, I, I understand there's a lot of Congress people up on the Hill that have been doing this for a real long time, and the career politician is nothing new, but still, 40 years, is just staying in state politics is incredible to me. Uh, but he got his brain picked. And one of the things was, of course, the hot topic in the Democratic Party right now is should we move to the left? These scary leftists coming into the party, these these radical revolutionaries like Bernie Sanders, should we should we accept these radical teachings? Uh, and his thoughts on it were every time the Democrats elect somebody, quote unquote, leftist, that they get a reaction. So when they elected Bill Clinton... Well, then they got eight years of Bush, and then they elected Obama, and now they're going to get four to eight years of Trump. And this is just one of those things that it gets so close, so close to the truth, and just completely misses the point. That yes, there is absolutely a reaction, but it's not a reaction to some quote-unquote leftist. Bill Clinton is not a leftist. Obama is not a leftist. Bill Clinton was a new Democrat. He spearheaded the conservatization of the Democratic Party and stripped them of any sort of uh, inklings of leftism that you might ha say they had during the 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, he, he stripped the party of that and embraced this neoliberal, neoconservative ideology. And Obama, of course, tried to pursue his compromise at all costs drone strike anyone in the way sort of uh sort of policy with some mild social liberalism and even that was enough to send the right wing into the fits of racism of paroxysm of bias uh that led them to electing well donald trump 
the idea that electing a leftist would be any would cause any less of a reaction than electing another you know centrist uh, compromised Democrat. The right wing is going to work themselves up into a lather either way. There's no backing down. This isn't a reactionary movement anymore, at least in partisan terms. They're not reacting against the Democrats. They're reacting against the the perceived economic and social situations they find themselves in, and that uh, the Democrats are just a scapegoat. They're just in. They're just an avatar that the right can point to and blame all of their woes on. And no matter who the Democrats elect, they will always be accused of being communists. They'll always be accused of being terrorists. They'll always be accused of being weak on crime and weak on foreign policy because these things are axiomatic truths of the Republican worldview. And it's not going to change. It's not going to matter whether we have Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders on the ticket. The reaction is going to be the same. You know, the the left doesn't need to elect its version of Donald Trump in order to get a reaction from the Republicans. If anything, the fact that it took Donald Trump to wake up the Democrats to the reality of this situation, and not even totally successfully, should show you how myopic and naive and optimistic the Democratic Party has really been uh, for the past several decades. Absolutely. It's just... It's ridiculous because, of course, there's a reaction. That's that's the. This is something that's central to leftist political thought. Is of course there's a reaction. That that's the whole thing of reactionary politics. It's this this idea of the reaction is central to our belief system and what what we can expect to face. And to miss the point so completely is just. Uh, it, it's frustrating, but of course Jerry Brown is no leftist either. He's very much a centrist. He's an uh, asshole. Liberal. He's an asshole. Los Angeles legalized street vending and stopped the LAPD from beating up street vendors. So Jerry Brown sent in the California Highway Patrol to do it instead. Overruled, overruled the city and county decision to uh, allow people to make a living selling tacos in downtown LA, and uh, the state. Uh, decided to intervene because Jerry Brown is an asshole and he's a neoliberal and uh, he's not the worst person in politics, but he's certainly not a good one. Well, I think that's as good of any of a statement. Jerry Brown is an asshole to depart from. Oh, I already gave an explicit content warning at the beginning. So fair enough. Uh, I don't know what Apple's standards are. That's the only thing I have to worry about is iTunes of if I have to label these things. I'll probably bleep out a couple things and take my chances with the rest. Speaking of assholes, though, we have the Jacobin, a uh, favorite of the Bernie Kratz, this kind of pseudo-leftist thing. Apparently, they've been getting better in recent they've days. They've been having that, some uh, good takes the past couple months. Um, yeah. A lot of the usual social democratic sort of bullcrap, but there's been some uh, there's been some genuine leftish takes coming out of uh, Jacobin recently, but... But, uh, transitioning from one asshole to another, uh, the Jacobin's chief publisher, uh, Bashkar Sankara, not sure, some kind of pronunciation, uh, he is he is the man in charge of the Jacobin, and he has recently spearheaded a buyout of the British The Tribune uh, newspaper. Basically, the, this paper is is a really historical paper in Britain for the left. The uh, Tribune had people like George Orwell writing for it, and is a really significant 
leftist paper in Britain, uh, very significant with the labor movement and the unions. Uh, unfortunately, it's come on hard times recently. It, its membership has really declined. Uh, people aren't paying their subscriptions anymore. It's kind of part of print media in general, part of that overall decline. So the Jacobin has come in and bought them out. And for the last, I guess, year or two, there's been some really dedicated workers who have agreed basically not to get paid and keep the newspaper alive in this hard time until somebody could buy it out. And so they've been working basically for free to keep this going. And what ended up happening is uh, Mr. Sankara promised 70% back wages to the workers that had kept the newspaper going and to rehire workers that had quit to allow the newspaper to keep going. Uh, after making this promise to the workers, he decided that eh, that wasn't that great of a deal and just straight up cut them out, didn't give them their pay, didn't rehire anyone, and just is basically doing uh, what robber barons of old would do and honestly of what robber barons today in the capitalist system do of these these businessmen who come in and scalp companies and take them for all they're worth and leave unemployed workers in their wake i hadn't known much about the ownership of jacobin before this i wasn't aware of who mr sankara was but from what i've read uh mr sankara is a trust fund multimillionaire from an elite suburb of New York City with vaguely uh, social democrat, benevolent, authoritarian sort of views. And he basically is not a friend to the left in any way. And the left lean of Jacobin is more a marketing decision on the part of uh, Sankara and the other administrators of the Jacobin, the other senior management. It's a marketing decision to appeal to a certain demographic. And while the writers may be sincere leftists, uh, the management, Mr. Sankara, is a bourgeois multimillionaire, uh, apparently quite a brash, arrogant person uh, from people who've met him face to face. And really from I, I hadn't really studied the Jacobin all that much beyond reading the occasional article, but apparently uh, apparently Jacobin has been underpaying its writers systematically. Um, normally, uh, a publication the size of Jacobin would pay its writers several hundred dollars per article as a fair, you know, as a fair compensation for the work performed. Instead, uh, Jacobin has claimed that oh, its budget is too tight. It's too strapped for cash. You know, it's a leftist magazine. Oh, it's not that well funded. It can't afford to uh, pay writers a fair wage. So it's been typically paying something like, you know, 50 or at most $100 per article. Uh, to these leftist writers who are writing about socialism and social democracy and justice and fairness. These people are being taken advantage of and underpaid, uh, being told that the company can't afford to pay them more. But suddenly, suddenly here comes Jacobin paying out probably um, for the ownership it was purchased from a football team, probably at least in the millions of dollars for this paper. And they're saying that they couldn't afford to pay, you know, a, a decent wage to the writers uh, who've been basically fueling uh, Jacobin's success for the past several years. Writing is a working class job for most writers. It's a proletarian profession. Marx was a writer for newspapers. Um, and these writers were being taken advantage of by um, yet another bourgeois capitalist 
a what Z, what Zizek would call a liberal communist <laughs> contradiction in terms who pretends to be uh, friendly to the left but is actually just as greedy and vicious and exploitative as any other capitalist out there. Absolutely, and having done copy work before, I can say fifty bucks an article is poverty wages. Like that's that's just absolutely outrageous that somebody would pay fifty bucks. Fifty bucks an article is what PC gamer <coughs> pays for a write-in from a non-professional writer that you can just write an article for them, and even they pay more for in a non-professional role if you get your story selected to get posted there. For actual genuine copy work, uh, writing articles, getting contracts, uh, it's it's absolutely outrageous to see somebody get paid fifty bucks when. Uh, it's it's not a matter of time. It's not a matter of how many hours that you spend on this. It's a matter of uh, an article is worth a lot to that newspaper where it's getting published. The ad revenue, the sponsorships that go on it. Uh, there's there's a lot of money behind it. That fifty dollars is just a serious outrage. So especially considering that Jacobin is at this point the largest. Uh, left-leaning, like, hard-left publication. Maybe not hard-left, there's still a lot of social democracy on there, but it's it's a large publication. They have over a million subscribers. That's That has to be generating revenue. I, they certainly don't skimp on ads, I can tell you that. Certainly. We'll, we'll go ahead and put a pin in this and move into our lightning round before our final story of the night. We've gone on quite a bit at this point. Uh, so, New, new, new Apple stuff. They, they just recently announced some Apple products, new iPhones, new watches, new things of that nature. Uh, the, the more expensive, uh, Apple iPhone now costs like $1,500. So, you know, take of that what you will. Uh, a feature that they've included on their latest watch though, they've, they've made a new Apple watch and it's got some fancy sensors that can tell if you've fallen. And so for individuals that enter their age as 65 or above when they set up their watch, it will automatically uh, turn on a feature that if they fall, and then I think it's like after a minute or two, if they don't tap on the watch to say they're okay, then it will start a 15 second countdown. And if they don't respond during that time, then it will call 911 and send help. Uh, this, this, again, good intentions. Uh, having seniors who might be living by themselves and fall down the stairs, of course we want help for them. Unfortunately, some lawyers have brought up the fact that uh, by calling 911, you're inviting the authorities into your home. And so if uh, under the plain sight doctrine, uh, if you've invited a officer into your home, uh, in this case because your watch called 911, and for whatever reason, there's something out on your countertop that might not be totally uh, allowed. For instance, if you're an old, older individual and maybe you take some medicinal substances for back pain or these things that happen when you enter your older years, um, and maybe those medicinal substances aren't legal in your state yet, uh, that, that could cause you some serious issues that your watch has just now invited the police into your home to be able to see that. And that's so. a real shame because I think this is a good idea. Um, my grandmother fell uh, 
before she passed away. And, uh, you know, something like this, it's really good intention. It seems like it could help a lot of people. Unfortunately, the problem in this case is not with the technology. The problem was with the police and with the uh, justice system that sees, you know, having a few joints on your counter as a crime worthy of imprisoning you away from society. Uh, This is the sort of thing that shouldn't be an issue, but is made an issue by our country's ridiculous laws. And so I think it's a shame that this is a, a potential side effect because I like the idea. But Oh, yes. It's, it's very much one of those situations. Technology making our lives better, except that uh, society has not advanced. The technology is going too quickly, I suppose, that society has not quite caught up to where we are. Uh, another quick story. Uh, as, as anyone who watches the news is aware, millennials have killed everything. Uh, millennials have killed just just absolutely everything. One of my college professors, his door is plastered with uh, headlines of all the things millennials have killed. There's some really funny memes you can find out there. Um, so amongst all the various things millennials have killed, apparently they're killing divorce as well as the divorce rate since the early uh, aughts, it looks like, has kind of tapered off. And now it, it, some deeper statistical studies are showing that millennials, uh, while they are less likely to marry, when they do, apparently are also less likely to divorce, which is fascinating considering that um, I naturally get all of my news from Mr. Sean Hannity, the best news source ever. And uh, Mr. Sean Hannity was telling me that young people are depraved and have no values anymore. And I, this, 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 this is ruining my well, when you think about it right now. Are millennials killing divorce, or did baby, or did baby boomers kill marriage? Mm, that's some. Um, that's that's something to something to consider. <laughs> that's what that's what uh, Marx would call a concrete inversion. <laughs> Before we get into our final story of the night. So for anyone who has listened to this extra long, extra special episode, uh, thank you for sticking out with it. Um, we, we've had some good discussions so far of being able to talk into the late hours of the night about just anything and everything. Um, if you have stuck through this, obviously you're enjoying the content that is being produced. And perhaps if you really enjoy the content being produced and you feel like uh, the content producer should be able to eat. Um, uh, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash socialist RA podcast. Uh, you can go there. I have one tier. It's a $5 a month tier, the people's tier, the only tier that matters. Uh, it, it, it helps. I, I can buy spaghetti with it. Every, every contribution is five boxes of spaghetti is how I look at it. So it's, it's fantastic. And you get access to special premium content, like premium content being recorded this very night, as far as special episodes. I also post some essays there every now and then. I need to get on some book readings, uh, things of that nature. There's, There's some premium content to make it worth your while, if you don't feel like just tossing some money out there without getting something in return. Uh, so that is... That is my pitch. So let's get right into the final story of the night, which is the apocalypse. 
So I'm sorry, everyone. The world, the world is ending. The end is upon oh, us. No. The end of history has come, and unfortunately, it is not communism. It is just I don't know how I don't know how the world's going in. I think NASA said there's an asteroid coming in 2030 something that might hit us and obliterate us all. Uh, maybe a gamma ray burst comes through and destroys the electrical grid. Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe Trump just loses it one day and hits the red button in the White House and launches all the nukes. I, who can say? Who can say how it all ends? Uh, maybe capitalism just destroys itself and we descend into anarchy. Uh, the bad kind of anarchy. No, not the good kind of anarchy. Um, so the end is coming and the rich see it. And so the rich have started uh, indulging in this uh, sort of apocalypse insurance, we'll call it, that... This is actually a story kind of near and dear to me because a lot of these businesses have set up shop in Kansas and throughout the Midwest because uh, Kansas in particular, due to the nuclear strategy of the United States during uh, the Cold War, it was basically determined that they didn't want to put nuclear silos in urban areas for obvious reasons that if the enemy attacks your nuclear silo and it's in an urban location, then a lot of people die. Um, this is kind of short-sighted because their answer was, okay, let's put it out in the middle of farms, but now all your farms are destroyed and radioactive. So how are those people in the urban centers going to survive when they don't have farms? But that's besides the point. Matter is that uh, Kansas has a bunch of old missile silos that aren't in use anymore since the Cold War is over and uh, Russia was our friend until they weren't when it was politically convenient for them to be and not to be. Um, so we have a bunch of defunct missile silos. A uh, benefit of a missile silo is it's a really solid concrete and it's designed to survive a nuclear war. So they're pretty tough things and the government has been selling them on the cheap to make, raise some funds and some companies like the survival convo uh, the survival condo project which is about two hours north of wichita where i am uh has bought out a missile silo and converted it into a luxury apartment complex for the super rich who wish to ride out the apocalypse which joke's going to be on them when the united syndicalist state of kansas rises from the ashes and pillages it but yeah. it's uh it's sort of telling that the wealthy are preparing for the end of the world while telling all the rest of us that it's everything's fine. Capitalism's doing great. Global warming. Yeah, it's not that big a deal. You can keep using oil. We're just going to be over here stockpiling food and guns and underground concrete bunkers with steel blast doors. But, uh, you know, that's just a hobby, you know? It's just, just, just for funsies. You know, you don't have to worry about anything. I think the article I was reading described it as LARPing, yeah, playing the, a video game in real life. You know, there's lots of ways to LARP without uh, spending millions and millions of dollars on underground bunkers. And I know for these people, millions of dollars is, you know, afternoon uh, spending money uh, at the mall or some, something. But, uh, you know, it gives me bad vibes. And in addition to the nuclear silos, uh, one thing that a lot of these billionaire survivalists are doing now is they're going overseas apparently 
a great many of them have decided to put down bunkers in New Zealand. You know, the, the Kiwis are way out there in the middle of the ocean, far away from everyone, far away from the fallout patterns. Uh, it seems like a pretty good place to ride out the apocalypse. Lots of sheep, lots of hobbits. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry of uh, making these wealthy autocrats feel safer in their underground holes. Oh, absolutely. And it's... The reason these stories interest me so much, it's a real, real interesting thing watching the rich try to do this. And uh, this guy, uh, I have this quote written down uh, from Garcia Martinez that he he says, uh, he's talking about how you want your shelter to be away from the city, but not too far. And then he goes on to say, uh, quote, all these dudes think that one guy alone could somehow withstand the roving mob. No, you're going to need to form a local militia. You just need so many things to actually ride out the apocalypse. And it's fascinating to me that this is hitting on a very poignant point. <coughs> well, still missing the point. Because it's, it's true that the lone survival is just, it's a myth. It's a story to tell in movies. You don't survive any sort of catastrophe on your own because it's a military saying, but uh, one is none and two is one. So you have this situation, sorry, you have this situation where you have these, you know, rich billionaires who want to survive the apocalypse. So, okay, you get your shelter, you get your supplies. Okay, well, now you need a guy to maintain the electronics and the air filter in your shelter. Okay, so now you have an electrician. You don't. Uh, you're going to need somebody to take care of uh, your weapons, unless that's a major hobby of yours. You're not going to know how to be a gunsmith unless you just have so many guns that you get rid of them. Eventually, you're going to run out of food, and you're going to need people who know how to farm. You're going to need farming equipment and people to maintain that. You're going to need. Uh, you're you're going to need people around you just to stay sane. And suddenly, you're not just talking about you and a couple family members surviving the apocalypse you're talking about an entire group of people you know a dozen people probably minimum more likely you know somewhere in the range of 20 to 50 people to be a viable community of survivors and at that point at that point uh what's the point in having a billionaire around because they don't have any life skills because they've been using their money to buy everything for most of their life <laughs> Why would anyone listen to what this spoiled brat has to say? Why wouldn't they organize amongst themselves? Or why couldn't some strong man within the group take control and get rid of the billionaire? What's the point in having the, one of these people around when you have this community of skilled people who don't need them? What what do they think is going to happen? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can you can argue maybe society reverts to a feudalistic state and the billionaire becomes king, queen, or whoever, um, which ignores the fact that, like, for most of human history, uh, monarchs survived because they did have some kind of appreciable skill. They were usually had to be good in combat because um, kings win by bigger army diplomacy. And so you need to know how to actually defend yourself. And I really doubt any of these rich people we have today would know how to defend themselves in a apocalyptic situation, especially when they require an entire society just to sustain them. So I don't really think they're going to come out on top of that. 
it's interesting because the survival condo project that's outside of Wichita, it's not my first time that I've read about them. And it's these guys, I mean, obviously it's a fleecing scheme for the guy running it. And I mean, if you want to make your life's living off of parting rich people with their money, I mean, I don't think there's more honest work than that. But at the same time, some of his ideas are just so silly as to how it works. So, like, these 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 uh, missile silos that they've taken over, um, they're guarded by armed security around the clock. And it's supposed to be that if something does go down, then all these rich people, you know, they get into their private jets, they get into their Humvee, they drive out, they get to the shelter, they get in. Which, I mean, these shelters are... The location of these missile silos of public knowledge, you can find them on satellite imagery. So um, the idea is that these armed guards will be able to stop um, a force from getting to the uh, sh- the missile silo, breaching the defenses, which, uh, I mean, looking at what they've got, I'm sure they've got security measures that aren't made public, but it looks like a couple of guys of ARs, and uh, frankly... If any sort of coordinated attempt after some societal collapse by a well-structured group, and there will be well-structured groups afterwards because it's just how society never truly collapses. We never get to a situation where it's every man for himself. It's always there will be groups of people that get together that survive the situation and band together to help themselves and help each other. Um, a, a sniper... Honestly, that's that's all it takes. One or two snipers could probably defeat the security measures of the silo, at which point you have access to the outside of the silo, at which point these silos were not designed to survive invasion. They were designed to survive nuclear war. So they were not designed with the intention of mind that there are enemy soldiers outside and you need to keep them out. Their design was you survive the initial blast so that you can launch your own rocket. Um, so just uh, as a result, it's uh, any sort of coordinated effort is going to be able to defeat this alongside the fact that do you think your armed security is going to stick around? Why would armed security stick around after society falls? Why would they have any reason to listen to their rich patrons? Why wouldn't they move into the shelter themselves? Exactly. Uh, society has fallen. Uh, money is meaningless. Do you think uh, your dollar bills are going to work? Do you think your debit card is going to work when society is gone? Uh, money ceases to have any meaning. Resources become meaningful. Food becomes meaningful. Do you have food? Because that's what's going to be the currency, is things that can keep you alive. Food, medicine, water. Are uh, these rich people going to have that? Because I really doubt it. Good luck convincing the security guard why he shouldn't go into the silo, lock the door behind him, and just leave you for the Mad Max hellscape outside. Yeah, the whole thing is... The whole thing is a scam, and it's a scam against rich people. So like you said, fine by me. But uh, yeah, it's it, it sort of shows... Uh, also sort of how delusional some of these people are, how deep in ideology they are, that they don't really think about the material consequences of their own survival plans. 
and what would actually happen. These people don't understand how society works. They don't understand how economies work outside of the hyper-specialized role that they play. And so, you know, this is what happens when you give massive amounts of capital to people who are totally unqualified to use it, aside from the fact that they uh, were capable of generating more capital. Your ability to make money doesn't make you smart. Especially when a lot of these folks have inherited their money that... uh definitely there's there's a lot of old money out there that uh, and you can see it in people like our current president who received small one million dollar loans elon musk used to walk around with Uh, emeralds in his pocket from his father's emerald mine in apartheid south africa there's there's a lot of there's a lot of that and we are definitely past the days where andrew carnegie shows up as a young scottish immigrant with no money and finds his way into fame and fortune uh that's it still happens the the situation that i think of is marcus peterson i think Uh, i know him better by his handle notch the creator of minecraft that he went from being a nobody in sweden uh, making a game in his basement and then he sold it to microsoft for two billion and now he's a billionaire and he is just the saddest sack alive because he's just a racist misogynist gamer yeah, nerd on the internet he's just he has two million dollars now or yeah, sorry two uh, billion dollars and and not to divert the conversation too much but i mean this this kind of plays into it that if you want to see how rich people act and why they're probably not going to make it for the apocalypse very well um uh notch upon finding fame and fortune uh with his two billion dollars went and bought this big old mansion and then like covered an entire room in candy dispensers and soda dispensers soda fountains oh my god and the, it's this is the saddest thing now though because he spent like hundreds of thousands of dollars on just like tons of candy and filled this room with just tons of candy dispensers uh, just a ridiculous amount of money but he has no friends and nobody goes and hangs out with him. And so now all the candy has gone bad. And so now he just has a room in his mansion just filled with spoiled candy. And is the most perfect metaphor for the type of person he is. Oh my god, I didn't know that. But that is exactly the type of thing that Notch would do. So, he is... It's, it's this sort of mentality. And of course... You know, some snobby old money person would be like, well, that that's what happens when the peasantry gets money. That, of course, the peasantry, when when if you look at like what what the super rich spend their money on, these proper bourgeoisie people who have so much money that it's, it's very difficult for them to even be able to lose their money, that, that the sheer thing of like compound interest just it. When you have enough money, eventually you you can make enough just off of interest alone that you gotta really mess up to be able to lose that much money. Um, it's it's one of those situations that rich people uh, can and do spend money on really stupid things, and I mean for 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 crying out loud, uh, Peter Thiel runs a blood clinic wherein he pays teenagers for their blood and then sells it to rich people 
mean, this is the sort of thing that rich people do. Yes, this is literally, uh, it's, it's, it's almost comical just how this is. And yet here we are. There's actual rich people paying for teenager blood because of some notion that this is going to help prolong their lives. They're going to prolong their lives any way that they can, even if that means spending the end of their days in an underground missile silo eating beans out of a can, hoping that their hired security doesn't rise up and overthrow their uh, oppressor. (laughs) So it's, yeah, it's, it's just crazy. I think this just shows the insanity of, we're 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 in late stage capitalism and this is where things are going well that's as good of anything to end on uh as always i can be contacted at humvadev on twitter or many other places that you can find in the show you notes can hit, you can find me at uh la underscore socialist ra on twitter uh los angeles chapter yep they, they will be that the Los Angeles chapter will be very important when the the big one hits and California sinks off into the ocean. Honestly, honestly, as long as Orange County goes too, I wouldn't call it a total loss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think that's another prediction that Deus Ex made. Actually, that if we're if we're going to go ahead and say Deus Ex is a prophetic game, uh, Deus Ex says in the twenty thirties, I believe, that California just straight up slides off into the ocean it's it's not really explained very well in the games it's just it's just there as flavor text that oh one day really big earthquake happened and just the whole whole of california just gone to the ocean floor yeah it is what it is as long as i get those cool snazzy bionic sunglasses eventually uh, i guess trump is worth it well everyone we wish you a good night in trump's america and uh, just remember when when the big one hits, when the meteor falls from the sky, when the EMP happens, when the North Koreans attack. That's when it becomes our America. <laughs> exactly. Good night, everyone. Seize the means of production. Solidarity forever. Mm-hmm.